you know, things are really stacking up to look like Trump is just who GOP voters want. The things I'm actually more worried about in the polling when it comes to Republicans being able to do anything besides Trump are numbers like what Monmouth University put out uh, last week, where they showed that close to two thirds of Republicans think that Trump is their best chance to beat Joe Biden. Welcome to Politics is Everything, where we are wondering how crowded is too crowded of a field of presidential candidates. I'm Kara ong And I'm Kyle Kondik. Joining us for this episode is Natalie Jackson, a columnist with the National Journal. Previously, she was the director of research at the Public Religion Research Institute and has over 15 years of extensive expertise in survey research. Natalie, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. You are writing this week about the crowded field of presidential candidates. Um, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how you respond to analysts and observers from both parties who think that the GOP has a good chance of nominating someone other than Trump. You know, I I don't want to say there that there's no chance that will happen um, because there's always a chance, right? Until it's done, it's not done. But, you know, things are really stacking up to look like Trump is just who GOP voters want. Um, if you look at the polling that's been released, you know, obviously the horse race polls are showing Trump well in the lead. You know, for what that's worth, that's kind of a, a rough indicator. But Trump is getting over 50 percent in those polls, which is a key level of support. You know, that kind of constricts how much anybody else can can get if he's over 50 percent. Nobody else can win. Um, so we'll have to see how that plays out over time. The things I'm actually more worried about in the polling when it comes to Republicans being able to do anything besides Trump are numbers like what Monmouth University put out uh, last week, where they showed that close to two thirds of Republicans think that Trump is their best chance to beat Joe Biden. And that just knocks DeSantis away from that electability pitch. I mean, he can still make his electability pitch. Uh, but if Republicans already think Trump is the best bet to get elected, you know, that whole pitch becomes meaningless. And so that is a huge concern. And then a CNN poll um, from March also showed that Republicans would rather nominate someone that they agree with than someone they think could win. So if you put all of those things together, you get a pretty compelling case that the GOP base just wants it to be Trump. So barring some, you know, really disruptive event, Trump's legal troubles catching up, which again, you know, required reminder that there's no reason Trump can't run while he's under indictment. You know, it, it's just looking really difficult for other Republican competitors to get get their nose in, get get a wedge in there. You know, Trump seemed like he was weaker like three, four months ago than he is now. And DeSantis seemed like he was stronger, even though he's only been an announced candidate, obviously, over the past uh, couple of weeks. Um, you know, my theory on, on Trump was always that, you know, sometimes Republicans feel bad about him or whatever, because there's some sort of negative development. Maybe that was like the, the midterm or something like that. But then as time passes, people just kind of like a lot of Republicans just sort of naturally gravitate 
back to him. Well, I mean, what do you think of that kind of argument? And like, why do you think Trump is maybe doing better now than he was, I don't know, four, three, four, five months ago? You know, I think it's a combination of factors, one of which being just simply that polls of a presidential primary that's more than a year out, as it was in, you know, November, December, January, just really aren't picking up that much signal uh, about what's really going on. They're picking up more of what people are seeing at the moment. Um, And Republicans did have a bit of a rough uh, midterm. I mean, they still won the House, but it wasn't anything near what um, an out party should have gotten um, by historical standards. So, you know, there I think there was an element of responding to that, um, an element of, you know, DeSantis was played up in the media a lot at that point. Um, That's not trivial for people who aren't necessarily paying attention to the any campaigns yet, because there wasn't a campaign in January, um, the media coverage is going to make a big difference. And so all of the positive coverage of DeSantis as a Trump alternative, I think probably moved people a little bit, you know, and then DeSantis kind of becomes more prominent and we start seeing the downsides of him and where he's maybe not quite primetime ready or he hasn't faced the vetting that Trump has faced. Um, and Trump gets his openings to attack him. And so then the headlines become again about, oh, wait, can DeSantis actually do this? You know, I'd actually love to see a study, um, academics, free idea. I'm sure somebody's already working on it, actually. Um, I would love to see a study on whether the media turned negative toward DeSantis before at the same time as or after public opinion on DeSantis started flagging a little bit. You know, I'd like to see if we could make that connection because I do think there was so much positivity about DeSantis and then it just kind of fell apart. And non-trivially, you know, there's also some pretty unpopular, pretty extreme stuff that he pursued in the Florida legislature this session. Um, So that could be a factor, although I'm guessing it's more the general environment um, than anything specific, because, again, we're in a stage where people aren't really paying that close attention yet. It kind of reminds me of that. There's this classic uh, kind of like political science. Maybe I'm using the wrong terms. It's like discovery and then scrutiny. And like so DeSantis was in kind of in it from a national standpoint, was in this sort of like discovery period around the time of the uh, of the election or even before that, as he became kind of a, an opponent of, you know, shutdowns over COVID and all that sort of stuff. And then, you know, more of the scrutiny lately. But it's an interesting point you raise is like, you know, is it, is it sort of like the, the, the public sort of following the, the media criticism or whatnot or or was the public sort of discovering that on, on their own? It might be also challenging to disentangle what he you know his challenge with with disney as well and because that was high profile you know that that might have been a step too far even for you know for for people who may have voted for him (laughs) ahead of time so maybe maybe that fight was just too much even for republican primary voters i don't know yeah don't mess with the mouse man so the other thing that we're seeing too um and and i'm just curious on your your take on it is also just among republican primary voters where 
they there substantial majorities of Republican primary voters do believe Trump won the 2020 election um, and are not concerned about January 6th. Um, and, and that also seems to be a kind of a pre a pretty big indicator that um, even if he's under indictment, that's not going to matter for especially primary voters. It may matter in the general election, um, but it's not going to matter among this current field of contenders. Right. And I think one thing that trips people up, I've, I feel like half of Twitter arguments that I see arguing about Trump's electability are missing this point. There are things that will hurt him in the general that don't matter in the primary. And that's a big one. Um, the election stealing beliefs and January 6th, it's absolutely not going to hurt him among most based Republican voters. I mean, we've seen two-thirds, 70% of Republicans saying that the election was stolen since January 2021. I mean, the the belief just hasn't shifted. And, you know, there's there's no reason to think it will. So any indictment that comes down on January 6th or anything like that, anything related to the 2020 election is just really unlikely to move the primary voters. Now, when we get to the general election, there are going to be plenty of people who would never, ever vote for Trump because of his actions into the 2020 election. And that might include some people that voted for him before. But by and large, I do think it's going to be mostly a group that would have never voted for him anyway. Um, so it, it will be interesting to see how that plays out and whether it hurts him in the long run or if they can even get an indictment out of it. You know, it's really unclear where those cases are going. Uh, Natalie, in addition to your National Journal column, you have Substack, Hurting Cats and Polls, great name. Uh, you sent something out, I think it was last night about uh, uh, about the or yesterday about the uh, the Republican National Committee's debate rules uh, and, and, you know, what do you need to be included and what you don't? And there's a polling component to that, um, which we've seen in, in some previous uh, primaries, uh, you know, in, in terms of being able to get on the debate stage. But, you know, what do you think about using these polls as uh, um, as, as sort of one of the ways to get in debates and specifically, like, what do you think of these, you know, RNC rules as 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 we're looking at them for 2024 the first debate i think is uh milwaukee uh august 23rd so uh coming up coming up here relatively soon yeah this is a fun topic for me because i was working at huffpost running uh the huffpost pollster aggregation site when mm. kind of the original oh my gosh what do we do about debates started happening, you know, in the last three cycles, we've had just unprecedented numbers of candidates. Uh, it was a maximum of 17 Republicans in 2016. 2015 was when they were having to schedule the debates. It was up to 28 Democrats at one point in mid to late 2019, which is just insane. And then we're going to have, you know, around a dozen, it looks like now. Um, there might be a few more surprises coming our way, a few, little more shifting before we get to August 23rd. But, um, you know, the, this has been a real issue for people scheduling debates. And in 2015, Fox News was doing the first debate and they said, OK, we're going to do a cutoff. The top 10 people, according to the polls, go in this debate and the bottom 10 people 
or the bottom seven or eight people go in the kids table debate, basically. Um, and one was held earlier in the evening and then the, the top 10 was, you know, the primetime big event. And, you know, I did some writing with my colleagues at HuffPost at the time about just how wild it is to try to make a cutoff based on polls that have margins of error, that have a lot of uncertainty. You know, the difference between number 10 and number 11 is like a fraction of a percentage point. And you're making a hard cut based on, you know, things that are not really that meant to be that precise. Uh, it kind of feeds into the whole problem of taking polls way too seriously as indicators of what's going to happen in an election. Mm. Um, and in fact, uh, Marist, who was then polling nationally with McClatchy, um, just said, we're not going to do it. We're not going to play. Or we're not going to release any data that would qualify for this. Um, so they've got a little bit more sophisticated since then. By 2019, um, Democrats started working in more than just polling data. Um, they pulled in fundraising data um, and re kind of tightened the definition around what types of polls would qualify and that sort of thing. There was a lot less backlash to that, I think, because we were already kind of used to it. I think 2015 was kind of a shock in that it was the first time, oh my gosh, we're, we're having to make a cut of who gets to debate with each other. Um, this year, we see the Republicans adapting something pretty similar to what the Democrats did in 2019. They're using polls, they're using fundraising data. Um, there's also a candidate pledge provision in there, which is clearly geared toward Trump. However, I think I wrote this in my Substack piece, or I, if it's not there, I wrote it and then deleted it. Um, but I think I left it in that if you um, think Trump won't sign that pledge and then renege on it, if he needs to, you're you're absolutely misguided. I mean, he will agree to that to get on the debate stage. And then if he's not the nominee, he's not going to be held by it. So anyway, um, the polling section of those requirements is a little bit weird. Some of them make sense, but there are two that don't. They have a piece in there about um, no subgroup can be weighted beyond the margin of error in the poll. And that just... I've checked this with several people. I've watched the tweets from survey statisticians. Like, nobody knows what this means. <laughs> there's, there's literally no technical definition to what they're saying here. So, you know, we can guess what they're responding to, maybe, but there, there's just not any, any clear um, definition of that in survey world. So, you know, that needs some work. <laughs> Who knows where that's from? You mentioned this, but um, one thing that, that I thought was was striking is they say registered Republicans, which is not like a real thing in some states. I mean, you, you know, there's some states have party registration and some don't. So you're, you're sort of taking it as as you know self-identified Republicans or something like that. But as as it is written, it's not really it's not really feasible in some places. Yeah, the other one is that they they say the survey has to 
poll at least 800 registered likely Republican voters. And I'm not sure what that is. I mean, that could be a few different things. They could mean 800 registered voters who are likely to vote in the Republican primary, which might be some independents, right? Not everybody has closed primaries where only Republicans are able to vote. Um, it could mean they want 800 Republicans. It, it could mean several different things, but it, it's an unusually large, if they are referring only to Republicans, it's an unusually large number. I kind of walked through the math behind that in the piece. If you think about most public political polls surveying about 1,000 to 1,500 people, by the time you cut that down to Republicans and then cut that down to people who might vote, you're not going to get 800 people. You're, you're looking at, you know, four to 500. And, you know, while I understand that they don't want to make their decisions based on small polls, you know, if you think about it, four to 500 people in the nation is pretty small. I mean, that, that feels a little awkward. Um, we know, you know, if you've done good sampling practices and everything else, the margin of error applies and, and it, a valid sample. But I can see not wanting to base your decisions on that. The problem is, and Nathaniel Rakich uh, posted this on Twitter, you know, he actually counted how many polls would qualify based on this rule. And it's not very many. And honestly, they're, they're almost all... Uh, Republican pollsters. And, and so it's, it's just, we're not clear what it means. And it's a weird kind of sample size rule. So I, I just, I kind of want to kick that one back them back to them for more consideration too. So I read your piece and I saw what Nathaniel had, had also written on Twitter. And, but then I kind of wondered like if that was actually intentional, right? Like if they're actually trying to narrow the the pollsters that they would use. You know, that could be the case. It's an interesting way to do it, though. Um, you know, both. I mean, it's the same as like the pledge, right? Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, we're just going to make these rules <laughs> so that we're using our people and our, you know, we're, we're going to make these rules to benefit the, the, the folks we want to elevate, right? <laughs> right. You know, and when, in 2015, when Fox News, you know, was sponsoring the debate and they were kind of the first ones that had to do this, they were up front and said, here are the calculations, here are the polls we used, here's who qualifies and what, you know, there's no guarantee that the RNC is going to tell us exactly what polls they used. You know, they're, they may keep it behind the scenes and you know, it's not going to be that hard for those of us who know polls and know where to find them to go look and see kind of what it seems like they're looking at. But, you know, the, they, one, the threshold is 1%. 1% is not a significant threshold. Like, it shouldn't be that hard to get to 1% if you're going to have any kind of an outside chance of doing anything in these primaries. Um, so, you know, I, at the same time, as I, I think it's weird and badly worded, it also may just not matter that much. Well, you know, to, to that point, too, like like 
whether someone gets 1% or not may be determined in some ways by whether they're actually included as a, as an option to respond to, you know, right. Because there are, there are lots of people who are running, you know, some, some big names, some not. And like, you know, if Steve Laffey or Perry Johnson or Larry Elder is, you know, there's a debate as to whether to include those candidates on the actual polling questionnaire. And if they're named, maybe they make it. And if they're not, then they don't. Right. I mean, that's always the debate when you're putting polls together even. And you have the same problem when you get to a general election with third party candidates, right? If you put them on, you'll get more support for them than, you know, probably actually exists. If you leave them off, you're obviously, you know, not counting potential support that's out there. So, you know, especially when we get to high numbers of candidates um, and telephone polls where some poor interviewer is reading these names, uh, you know, it, it's, in 2015, we were still very heavy on telephone polls and um, those people had to read 17 names. Like, and you, you, by good practices, you have to read them all because people have to know their options. So these are very real debates that pollsters have about who goes on the question and who doesn't. Um, so I would, yeah, that, you know, it's interesting that they mandated some things, but didn't say must include all candidates. You've written about how reproductive rights played a critical, pr- played a pivotal role in 2022, um, including um, for our post-election book, The Red Ripple. I wonder if you would talk a little bit about current attitudes about reproductive rights and what surveys are telling us now about where the public is on the issues, um, both on reproductive rights broadly, but maybe on abortion restrictions um, specifically. Sure. So, you know, the case of 2022 was really interesting because I think people pre-election tended to think it was either all or nothing, like either abortion was going to really, really matter. The Dobbs decision decision coming in June, you know, knocking down Roe v. Wade. I think most people were were under the assumption it was either a yes or a no. Either this is going to be a big deal or it's not. And as the economy kind of became a bigger deal throughout the fall, the the conventional wisdom became that economy was going to matter much, much more. And abortion reproductive rights was kind of on the back burner. What we saw, and I had written this in August for National Journal, is my thinking was, you know, in order for abortion to matter, there have to be competitive races. And so we're not going to see a uniform swing. We're going to see some swings here and there where it's particularly salient or where other issues haven't taken over. And I think that's a lot of what we saw, you know, in Pennsylvania and Michigan, um, places where it was very much front and center. Um, we saw it matter. We, we saw an uptick in the percent of people in the exit polls who said, you know, this was a critical issue for me. Um, and then places like Texas, Florida, New York, really didn't. Um, You know, Florida was kind of settled at that point with a 15-week ban. So, you know, most people can accept a 15-week ban. Polling on 15-week 
bands, generally shows, you know, even among people who don't like it, they find it, you know, like reasonable. Um, so with Florida under a 15 week ban at the time, it wasn't really a huge issue. Texas had uh, restrictions in place that predated the Dobbs decision. So, you know, Dobbs itself was not the factor that rendered abortion like impossible to get in the state. It was, they had already um, done away with it before the court case came down. Um, New York gets protected, you, you know, so you just had different reactions across different states. And I think that is something that we may see more of in 2024. It may be a little bit harder even for reproductive rights to break through as an issue because of the nationalization of the race. You know, when, it, when there's a presidential race, everything becomes much more nationalized. Um, and kind of we see local effects diminished a little bit. Um, and I think it's possible that could happen. It's also possible that, you know, some of these places where um, abortion has been heavily restricted, there are efforts to get a, an amendment on the ballot or to get a referendum on uh, abortion laws like we saw happen in Kansas last August. Um, in November, we had Kentucky, Montana, a couple of other states. You know, and what we're seeing when it's directly on the ballot is that even in red states, people will vote for protecting some level of abortion rights. You know, the, there are caveats and public opinion varies on you know, what restrictions people find acceptable and what they don't. But when it's on the ballot directly, even these super red states will vote to protect it. So I, I think that's more where we would see the impact of reproductive rights in 2024. Whereas I think in the midterm context and in, you know, the first few months after that kind of shocking decision came down, um, Shocking as in a shock to the system, really, um, as much as surprising. I think 2022 was kind of unique. Natalie Jackson, thank you so much for joining us on Politics is Everything. Listeners, you can read more from Natalie at the National Journal. We'll drop some links both to her writing on the National Journal and to her substack, Hurting Cats and Polls, in the episode notes. Thanks, Natalie. Thanks for having me. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Politics is Everything. Editing and production was done by me, Kara Ong Whaley. Our theme song is Let's Boogie by Chris Fays. You can learn more about the Center for Politics and its work to strengthen democracy on our website at centerforpolitics.org. You can also engage with us on social media at center number four politics. We welcome your suggestions and questions for future episodes. Thanks so much for tuning in. Until next time. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.